Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome, friends, to another edition of IGN Unfiltered. It's my monthly interview series where I have the good fortune to sit down with the best, brightest, most fascinating minds in the games industry. Uh, and today I'm pleased to be joined by Joe Fielder. He is a longtime game industry veteran uh, from back in the games media days. You were once at this side of the it's table. True. It's we'll true. Get, we'll get to that. Uh, but these days you are the creative director finishing up Underworld Ascendant, the spiritual successor to Ultima Underworld, which is just an all-time great classic game so uh, joe welcome thanks so much for coming thanks for having me this is great um so like i said you i i mean i have to start i think you're the first f- former or current games media <laughs> veteran that i've had in here so yeah. you know that's i've been doing this for 16 years uh you did it for a while so uh but when you were a kid though like take me back further what did you want to be when you grew up uh, I, geez, I really wanted to be a writer, uh, and I was really fascinated with games, uh, particularly games like Wizard of War, where it, which is uh, one of the first talking games, uh, where as you're playing in this uh, kind of evil space maze, uh, you've got an uh, evil character who's taunting you throughout the game in a sort of like proto-showdown sort of way, Yeah, uh, which is funny because uh, I've then moved on to writing that sort of dialogue. Maybe not quite as astutely as uh, The Wizard of War, but uh, hopefully someday. What were some of the other, your other favorite games as a kid growing up? Uh, geez, I'm going to date myself by saying Adventure, Bard's Tale, uh, geez, uh, uh, Escape from the Mind Master, Dragon Stomper, a lot of, a lot of RPGs. A lot of, a lot of RPGs, definitely. Which is clearly, yeah, it's uh, now evident in your career. That sort mm-hmm. of, that is exactly the sort of arc you've been on, but... You're you're one for the classics for sure. Yeah, definitely. It's, yeah, uh, I've I've, uh, I've been been a fan of uh, games since the since the start. I'm totally dating myself by saying that. <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, I have a collection of uh, vintage systems and uh, the coin op in my my living room. Really? Yeah, I have the old Wizard of War. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah. And is, is that tough to maintain those things, or are they? Uh, it would be if I did. Uh, <laughs> there's a, definitely uh, of the two uh, two players. Uh, if you play on the right side, uh, one of the joysticks doesn't like to go to the right, and there's some background fuzz. So mm. I definitely need to to fix that up at some point. I think uh, we have a guy, Sam Claiborne, our managing editor, who I think could he he lives for that stuff. He's got he's his garage is full of pinball machines. Oh wow! So I think he could I think he could help you out, but. Um, yeah, what, are there any other, like, can you have just one cabinet in your house, or do you kind of get the bug and you want to have more now? You, they're like tattoos. You definitely want to get uh, more <laughs> once you, you have the first, uh, but uh, they're a little hard, harder to lug around. Uh, so I would love to get a pinball machine, but, man, those things are uh, tough to find space for. Yeah. So I've got a lot of the old systems, like the old Bally Astrocade and things like that. They're a little easier to manage. Do you ever do you, do you spend any, get to spend any time actually playing them? Do you hook them back up, or are they actively hooked up somewhere? Uh, the Wizard of War machine gets a gets a fair amount of play. Nice, uh, but uh, but some of them are down in the basement. Uh, yeah, it's uh, especially as we're finishing up a game, you don't get to play nearly as much as you'd like. Yeah, I guess uh, it, it's got to be always a good conversation starter if you have people over at the house. It's just like, well, what's the what's the deal here? And yeah. Then, and you get to talk about it and yeah, they talk don't, about your love. They don't expect it to actually work. It's funny. And, you know, Wizard of War also has some fantastic side art and things like that. It's yeah. neat. It's neat. That's awesome. Um, so you had a creative writing major mm-hmm. in college. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, who are some of the, the works or, or authors that were most inspirational to you? Geez, I was uh, times. I was a big fan of uh, William S. Burroughs and uh, uh, writers like like him uh, from the Beats. Uh, and uh, but over time, uh, you know, I started to dig into noir and uh, uh, you know Coen Brothers and things like that. Yeah. Uh, uh, a lot of stuff that uh, later, you know, working on the Bioshock series was uh, right in line with uh, some of Ken's inspiration. Worked out. Me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, were your were your parents supportive of of your ambitions to to get into creative writing? Uh, yes, definitely on creative writing. I think they were a little worried about the comics and the, the video games. I asked my dad if he was uh, ever worried about me growing up, and he mentioned like 
only when you were playing those Dungeons and Dragons games. And I was like, oh, now I'm working on an RPG. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I always, I always like to ask that of guests because I know even, like, I'm 38, and when I was growing up, like, my parents were super fu- cool with, you know, I, I wanted to get into writing, and I was like, video games, and at one point I said, oh, I'd love to combine these, and for me it ended up on this track, which, again, it started that way for you, too, but... Mm-hmm. Um, there were it, it's it wasn't nearly as common yeah. it, when we were kids, right? Of of parents, you know, a lot of parents just was like, those are just toys. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm always curious if you know you you encounter resistance from your parents or if uh, the people I have in here, like yourself, that end up thriving, it's partial at least in part because their parents yeah. didn't try to shut that door and were like, yeah, we're we're behind you. Yeah, no, my parents were super super supportive of the writing, and I'm hugely appreciative of that. Yeah. What do they? Uh, what do they think now? Of now that you're just a seasoned game developer, uh, do they? I mean, that's that. I feel like that's got to be a thing where they're bragging to their friends. Like, <laughs> yeah, our son makes video games. Uh, I've had a, I've had a, a, a few people bump into my dad who has the same name as me and be like, Joe Fielder, that sounds really familiar. And, um, and he was he was kind of uh, uh, enjoyed that. I put him in the uh, I put him in the credits for one of the Medal of Honors and special thanks. So he's uh, he's on Moby Games. As nice, Joe Fielder Senior. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> um, so again, I, as I sort of touched on at the top, you worked at GameSpot doing games media mm-hmm. uh, in the mid '90s. So at what point during that do you do you get the bug to cross over to game development, or or was that bug just always there? Uh, you know, actually, I was I was really proud of the fact that uh, uh, there were there was uh, some developer at the time was like, oh, you game journalists want to just want to make games, and, and I was like, no, I really enjoy working uh, as a as a game journalist, and yeah. it was super super fun gig. Uh, but after about eight years of working on magazines and uh, and websites, I really wanted to uh, try new challenges, and uh, uh, started uh, working up samples in uh, gee, the. Infinity Engine for Neverwinter Nights. I oh, sure, yeah, Bioware, the, the yeah. yeah, their tech. Yeah, it was. Uh, and I, I familiarized myself and kind of taught myself that engine, and uh, that uh, you know when I when I first went to do some of my early interviews for uh, game design, uh, even just talking through some of the bugs and issues I came up with and how I kind of circumvented them, uh, really helped me get my, my foot in the door. That's interesting. So even so, even when you decided to start trying to dip your toe in the water. You picked, basically, and you picked RPG tech. I did to do it with. Yeah, was that a? Well, I wonder if that was even a conscious decision on your part, or if you I'm just sort of naturally sure. gravitated I'm not towards sure. that. That's a good. That's a good question. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> it, uh, I know. I, f- I felt like I, I knew modules pretty well, and I knew knew story well enough from uh, from my background and a uh, fun place to kind of dive in. It was funny because later on, I, I think uh, uh, Knights of the Old Republic two. Uh, came out and had a few had a few bugs uh, when it on on chip uh, and I was familiar with those bugs from having worked with that engine just yeah. uh, on and privately. I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that. Oh wow. You know. <laughs> so it sounds like yeah, you weren't you, nobody nobody like lured you into it and said, hey Joe, we we think you'd be. It sounds like you you kind of found your own way into it. I definitely, I mean, every job I've ever gotten, I, I've looked out where people helped me uh, uh, with opportunities, you know, from, from even the start, working on magazines and whatnot, uh, getting a foot in the door to work on uh, the Medal of Honor series at uh, EA was yeah. uh, another uh, former game journalist, uh, Kevin Perry, who had made the jump from uh, computer game review uh, and knew that people could do that, uh, make, make that jump. Right. So, yeah. so uh, do you, looking back, do you are, are there any reviews that now that you're on the other side making games? Are there any reviews that you look back on or, or articles at all where you you think, oh man, oh that was I did I I didn't do that very well, or I you know I, maybe I got this wrong or uh, yeah, I mean there's definitely you know over, over years that uh, uh, you know working on uh, game reviews and, and reviewing hundreds of games, there's there's probably a few in there where I'm like, oh wow. Um, you know, there's definitely, uh, you know, when when I'm, I'm talking with other developers, I try not to bring up any reviews that I'm, I may have reviewed one of their games <laughs> and maybe not given it a, a stellar review. Uh, don't don't if uh, Warren Inspector is listening, don't don't go and read one of my old uh, Deus Ex Two reviews, Warren. Oh no! Do you feel like your time in games media has has helped you as a game developer at all, or? 
Yeah, yeah, I definitely, uh, you know, I definitely look at uh, things from, uh, you know, a reviewer standpoint. I definitely think of, look at games from a player standpoint, from experience. And, and one of the first things that I, I worked on for games writing was developing AI VO systems, basically combat dialogue. Yeah. Um, and really, one of the things that really got out of, under my skin as a reviewer was if you would hear the same line of dialogue multiple times and it really took you out of the experience. Sure. So every game I've ever worked on, I'm like, no, we have to make sure there's, you know, dozens of variations, even if it's just a tonal difference. Right. Uh, so I definitely uh, really think about things as far as and how is the player going to experience this? How, how is the reviewer, how is anyone really going to experience this? How is it all going to come together in a coherent way? Right. Do you, uh, so... Do you read reviews of your games? I do, I do, uh, and uh, uh, sometimes with a little trepidation. But uh, but you know, sometimes the games that are the most fun to work on uh, don't get the, the highest scores, and sometimes the games that are really rough to work on, uh, you know, get higher scores. So it's uh, it's a little uh, uh, back and forth. You always are, are you know proud of the work, but uh, it's uh, you know. It's uh, somebody representing their experience with the game, so it's yeah. totally honest. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the first part of that, because I, I can understand the, you know, the games that were uh, uh, you kind of had to trudge through and just mm-hmm. gut it out and end up being reviewed well, because you've, you've, you've been through the battles and you, you turned out a product that people like, but... You said you said you had there were times where you had a lot of fun on games that didn't necessarily end up getting reviewed super well. Yeah. You don't have to necessarily name any names oh, sure. sitting here, but I'm sort of curious what you mean by that. Yeah, I'd say uh, the second game that I ever worked on, uh, Medal of Honor Vanguard, uh, was one of the most fun uh, games that I ever worked on because it was the first game that I got to write for. Yeah. Uh, I was a, a level designer for it. I was an associate producer for it. I helped uh, develop the AIVO system for combat dialogue and uh, work with some you know, really fantastic engineers to uh, make that all come together. Uh, wore a lot of hats on that. And, yeah. uh, uh, you know, it was, it was definitely a game that it was one of the last games for the PlayStation 2, kind of an aging engine. Uh, but I, I learned so much, and I, I had a chance to really... Uh, uh, touched so many different spots of that game, and, and uh, it was uh, it was a great experience. It was really really fun, and you know maybe in the score side, not as not the highest scoring game I've ever uh, yeah. worked on. <laughs> well, when when you are when you when you first cross over and you're working on a video game, after spending years reporting on them and covering mm-hmm. them and reviewing them, like I I th- think about that for myself sometimes. Like I I love what I do. I don't necessarily have any interest in, in making games at this point in my life, but I when I run through the scenario in my head I feel like, man, I would I would just feel totally inferior on a development team because, you know, I'm just this like media lackey guy that's now in here trying to, you know, be part of the team. Like, do you how's your mindset when you're first making that jump from media to development because uh, I'm just sort of personally maybe no one else might care but I'm kind of curious it's, it was definitely tough I definitely going from the, the point where uh, you know working on GameSpot I was do, uh, doing uh, interviews with the BBC and CNN about you know my feelings on games and then uh, starting as a uh, you know as a level designer and really seeing how much I didn't know about making games it was definitely uh, you know reset on the ego yeah. Uh, and, but not, not in a totally bad way. Uh, it was uh, really uh, great uh, to, to be able to uh, you know, look at it from the other angle and to really take in uh, uh, the whole process of making games and, uh, and in a way kind of start from, start from scratch on it. <laughs> well, dovetailing off of something you just said is, I would say, what's the biggest thing that surprised you about game development that you didn't realize as from the journalism side, wow, uh, it is uh, it is a tough process. It is definitely uh, you know uh, it is a, a managed disaster throughout. <laughs> uh, it's uh, uh, there there's uh, it's a series of putting out fires throughout and uh, uh, really kind of making the the best decisions possible. Uh, and uh, it's uh, it's 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 tough. It's uh, uh, you know, but it's also really fun and. Uh, you know, uh, coming up with uh, creative solutions uh, to tough, uh, tough problems, both time and, and you know, uh, manpower and whatnot. Uh, you know, while still uh, uh, managing to you know have everything come together in a fun way and, and innovate. Man, it's a 
it's a really challenging uh, system. Uh, uh, it's a, it's a, uh, making games uh, is it's never boring. <laughs> I could I mean that makes a ton of sense. I mean there's always yeah. something new every day in some way. I'm sure whether it's yeah. a challenge or a, or a triumph. A yeah. breakthrough of some kind, or a new build, or what have you. Yeah, it definitely, you know, for making games, uh, there's definitely, you can learn on pa- from past experiences and learn from other games and things like that, but if you're really attempting to innovate, as many of us are trying to do, you're really trying to, uh, you know, push and come up with things that are kind of uncharted territory. And things like for, you know, Bioshock Infinite, there was a lot of things like with the skylines that, you know, that was kind of uh, hanging on to a roller coaster. Uh, Ken had a really clear vision of what he wanted to see for that, but that was really a tough thing to, uh, you know, bring together in a, in a coherent, fun way. Right. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I think it turned out pretty well. Now, do I, I'm not sure if I have my... Correct me if my notes are wrong here. Was was VMX Racing the first game that you worked on? <laughs> no. Uh, no. Okay. Uh, I, did, uh, I did some voices for VMX Racing. Okay. Uh, but I also... Um, the, that same developer who were uh, nearby EGM, uh, and they were friends of mine, I had, uh, I contributed for, uh, I got uh, uh, scanned for a Super Nintendo game, one of the final ones, and it didn't actually come out. It was an adaptation of the Jim Valentino comic book Shadowhawk. Hmm. And I was a guy uh, in a nuclear reactor uh, in a lab coat who hunkered down and turned into a mutant. Uh, (laughs) And I was this big on screen, but I have a really uh, uh, weird walk, and you can totally see that weird walk in the game it's funny so uh but yeah and i did uh from there i helped out with uh i did a little voices for vmx racing uh the guys from uh, giant bomb always give me a hard time about that so. <laughs> so, so yeah have you uh was there there was probably some point where an, a former colleague interviewed you and now that you were on the other side did that ever happen and was that sort of weird where you had to <laughs> you know, I, don't, I don't know that I mean we I've had uh, uh, went on Giant Bomb recently and we did a kind of a retrospective of days back at GameSpot which yeah. was really fun uh, but, uh, but not, uh, not as much on the uh, on, you know, talking about the, the games itself for uh, so you mentioned Medal of Honor, you you got to work on the Medal of Honor series for a while. Yeah, is there a, is there a favorite child of yours from from that era? Uh, I mean, I, there are so many of the early Medal of Honor games that I'm a huge fan of. Uh, the first two Medal of Honor games on the PlayStation are still some of my favorite shooters. Medal of Honor Frontline for the PS2 and Allied Assault for the PC. Yeah, fantastic games. Uh, you know, definitely try to channel uh, some of that energy for the first game I worked on, which was Medal of Honor European Assault, uh, and and also for Vanguard too. Uh, you know, like I said, a little bit of, of later, uh, uh, you know, uh, engine at that point, uh, but uh, but those were those were definitely inspirations. Do you get to do you, do you dive in and do a bunch of World War II research and? You know, for the writing and for just sort of the tone of the game at that point. Yeah, actually, that's one of the first things I did on um, Medal of Honor Vanguard. There were a bunch of people who were really focusing on the vertical slice, and a lot of the other game hadn't been really planned out yet. Uh, and EA had um, um, uh, it was around the time of Katrina, and uh, the historian that uh, EA had uh, wor- was working with uh, was based out of uh, New Orleans, and EA brought him out to uh, to Playa Vista. And so I had this World War II historian in the building. So yeah. I definitely tapped him for a, a bunch of uh, thoughts on how, the, how that game might be structured. And uh, uh, later on, uh, you know, presented that to the producer. The producer's like, did anyone ask you to do this? I'm like, mm. I thought I was in trouble. And uh, <laughs> uh, like, no. It's like, no, it was good. He was a very soft-spoken guy. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, I learned a lot about uh, World War II history from that and also did a ton of research. So. Uh, it's got to be fun to just hunker down and know you're, you know, you I, I don't learn wanna, something and express something. I don't want to say that, like, research is the best part of writing because it's all fun. Uh, but it, it's, a, it's a blast to, you know, uh, you know, it's kind of like an independent study for uh, where, where you get to choose your own topic. If you can kind of, uh, for writing, figure out, like, hey, what's an era or some area of research that I'm really fascinated by? And then I can, you know, dig into that, and and your own fascination kind of, hopefully, comes out in the in the writing itself. Well, maybe almost a complete one hundred and eighty degree turn is Boom Blocks, yeah. which you also worked on. Uh, how, how? Yeah, what's what was sort of your role on that? Because there's no. 
there's no uh, character dialogue to write for that game. Yeah. It's it's true. Uh, it was a little bit of a surprise when EA told me my next game was going to be Boom Blocks, uh, but uh, you know, really. Uh, I played the early demo of that game, and it was already fun. Uh, the the people who had worked on the early demo of that, uh, Doug Church, uh, Jeff Dixon, other other folks, uh, had already just made it a, a fun experience, and, and uh, it was definitely an interesting challenge to uh, kind of develop a game that was as accessible as uh, like walking up to. Uh, an arcade game in the in the 80s where you just could walk up and immediately understand everything there was to yeah. to do uh and so that was a that was kind of a fun challenge as a designer uh you know that's that's a game that whenever i mention to people that uh, worked on it they're like oh i love that game so that's uh, that's always nice i didn't realize doug church worked on that he's he's like the man behind the curtain of yep. some of the greatest games like he he seems like a very private, quiet person. Like I don't see interviews with him, or but he's he's, he's a Looking Glass alumnus as well. He's ubiquitous and mysterious. Yes. Yeah, yeah he's, <laughs> uh, uh, he's uh, definitely had his hand in, in some really fantastic games uh, and uh, a really great developer. Did you uh, did you ever get a chance to work with Steven Spielberg at all on it? Did he? Or, he uh, he's, he's he is not the kind of guy, from my understanding, that that just slaps his name on it. Like he's he is a gamer, and he he has he, he was involved very much yeah. involved in Boom Blocks. Yeah, there's a lot of times when uh, celebrities are attached to games, and they don't really they, they might have some deadlines, and they kind of blow. But Spielberg, he came up with the uh, initial idea of you know throwing the the, the ball, and uh, would check in regularly. I, I you know there was definitely. Uh, it was great to be able to tell my dad, you know, Steven Spielberg stopped by my desk the other, the other day. Uh, but, uh, yeah, yeah, he was, uh, he's a gamer. He actually uh, told a story about uh, how he first got introduced to games, which he was working on uh, Jaws, and Richard Dreyfus said, oh, come here, you gotta, you got to check this out. And uh, he and uh, Steven Spielberg went off and played Pong. Uh, on one of the piers until the machine was full of quarters and we couldn't play anymore. <laughs> so that was uh, that was his in for video games. That's so. cool. That's a great story. I love yeah. that. Uh, so, when did you join Irrational Games? And and were you were you uh, a fan of Ken Levine's prior to that, or what sort of? How do you find your way into into Irrational? Uh, I uh, lucked out in that uh, uh, you know people put in a good word for me. Uh, you know friends that I had worked with on on uh, previously. And uh, got the interview to, to go out and talk with them, and uh, I didn't actually know what I was interviewing for at the time. <laughs> there were rumors about it being the XCOM uh, first-person shooter. Right. And it was, I think, about three hours into the interviews when they they uh, finally said, "Oh, I guess we should tell them what 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 this is. It's Bioshock <laughs> 3. And uh, uh, but yeah, no, it's uh, uh, it was a, a really great opportunity. Uh, it was after I left EA. Uh, I came on in, on board as a producer, and then later uh, switched over to writing full time. Yeah. So I mean, Ken, I've had the pleasure of speaking to him many times over the years. Um, still want to try and get him in that chair, though, to, to put in a good word for me on that, if you can. But um, I mean, he's regarded as one of the luminaries and geniuses of this yeah. industry. What what is he like to work for? I, I mean, I, I think that Ken is uh, one of the, the best writers in the industry, if not the best. I, I think he's, uh, you know, a Coen Brothers, uh, you know, level writer. Uh, and uh, working with him on Bioshock Infinite uh, was, a, was a real uh, fantastic opportunity. I learned a ton from him. Uh, I got to, uh, at one point, uh, you know, write for the Splicers in that, and I'd done a pass on that, and... Uh, 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 him and uh, the other uh, one of the other writers, uh, Drew Holmes, gave me feedback, and Ken opened up his kind of playbook on how he came about writing uh, the Splicers uh, and some of the influences, you know, Requiem for a Dream and other things like that. Yeah, uh, 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 Willie Loman and uh, uh, really, you know, I had written characters who had been kind of uh, they had said sort of nasty or funny things, and he was like, "No, you have to feel sympathy for him." Uh, for horror, you really need to have some sense of empathy. Otherwise, it's just scares. And uh, that that uh, that meeting, uh, I felt like, taught me a, a ton about writing and game writing in particular. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch. And organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Do you remember the moment when you read, what, presumably, the, what, the last page of, of Infinite Script? Like, does Ken hand it to you? Do you get, uh, like, because that, I mean, as a, as a player, mm-hmm. when we got to the end of it, uh, it was, you know, it was it was a wow moment for sure. It was it was one of the coolest moments in video game storytelling that I had experienced up to that point. So, you obviously got had to find out about it uh, your own way, not mm-hmm. through probably not through playing it. I'm sure you know you you read it on a page. Uh, that's a good question. I don't remember when I first heard of that or saw of it. You know, I, I, there are a number of. Uh, times that were really memorable throughout the course of the six years I worked on Infinite. Uh, like I, I was part of the casting session with uh, Troy Baker and uh, Courtney Draper, and uh, uh, you know it was it was clearly there, there was a really interesting uh, uh, magic for for both of those performers. Uh, yeah. And uh, Courtney had this amazing uh, empathetic feel to her voice, uh, and uh, uh, you know, but geez, the Ending. I don't know where I was when when I, I learned uh, about that, uh, but uh, yeah, there, there's uh, uh, you know many many moments of. Uh, uh, I think there was a, one of my one of my favorite moments was we were about to go into uh, do some recording for one of the early demos of the game. Uh, it was the first demo that had the assault install character, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, we hadn't uh, we didn't we were just about to record and we didn't have the final script and. Uh, I was talking with Ken over the the phone, and he basically transcribed the speech for Salt and Stall, um, and he just made it seem easy. Like he, he you know, it, it's such a fantastic speech, uh, Amity and Gold, and uh, you know, it. Uh, yeah, I mean, when I've talked to him afterwards, he was like, "Oh yeah, I, I you know, uh, uh, it took me days to finally come up with that." But at the time, I was like, he, "It seemed like it was totally off the cuff." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's so cool. Uh, so you wrote the companion book for Infinite called Mind in Revolt. Did you find that easier or harder than than working on the game itself? Hmm. Uh, you know that was uh, that was really fun. It's the you know a pretty pretty short prequel uh, novella. It's only about uh, you know eighty pages altogether. 
but it was it was fun to have a chance to kind of uh, dig a little deeper with some of the characters. But uh, you know, I would say harder. I don't know that it was it was it was tougher. Uh, definitely challenging in different ways. Uh, you know, you have to uh, you know the the challenges of writing chapter to chapter versus you know you get to do some some sort of like bite sized narrative of working with games. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know they both have their interesting challenges. Yeah, I mean, do you get to? I, I'm, I'm in my head. I see it as more of a sort of isolated solo experience versus the game is is uh, is so much is super collaborative. Or mm-hmm. or am I totally wrong? And is the book you know is it just as collaborative? Is working on the game. I mean, definitely working on a, a book you can kind of hide out and, and write for a period of time, uh, and you're definitely getting feedback. But uh, you know, writing for games, you are are definitely more collaborative. Where you know you might have a first pass at writing, you get that in and test it out, see what works. Uh, sometimes you are uh, building off the strengths of uh, some of the things that the level designers have have come up with, or in some cases, uh, working on uh, Medal of Honor Vanguard was great because I got to write for Yuri Lowenthal, who is, uh, of course, the voice of Peter Spider-Man, Parker yeah. and Prince of Persia. Uh, he had actually come in; uh, he'd already been cast for uh, voices for some of the German uh, characters for AIVO because he's uh, multilingual. And when we got him into the studio, it's like, wait, you were the Prince of Persia? I'm totally writing all of this stuff for you in mind. So, yeah. uh, you know, you got, definitely uh, get to kind of write to different talents and, uh, uh, you know, adapt to, uh, you know, the folks you're working with. Do you, do you bother to read, like, do you read any other sort of game companion, like, prequels or novels? Like, you know, there's Drew Carpishan did a, a really good Mass Effect prequel novel that I read before playing Mass Effect, or, mm-hmm. or do you just you kind of not worry about that and just do your own thing? Uh, you know, I think for the for the most part, it's it's more uh, digging into some of the research. Uh, you know, 1915 was such an amazing time to uh, really dig into. Uh, uh, you know, the you know Devil in the White City, of course, was a big inspiration. Uh, but a lot of uh, primary research newspapers of the time, trying to get like a, a cadence to the the speech. Uh, but it's all, often like, in some cases, it's writing to people's perception of how people spoke at the time. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was something that Ken talked about for Bioshock. Was that uh, he found that in r- actual research that people wrote formally, but they spoke very casually. And in early testing. Uh, uh, people uh, felt like, oh, it didn't didn't sound right to them. So, <laughs> yeah, he uh, it, you know adapted uh, accordingly, and we did the same sort of thing for Bioshock Infinite. Where uh, I'm not sure if it's completely accurate for how people spoke in 1915, but it's a, uh, a reasonable proximity. Right. <laughs> That's interesting. I never even thought about that. How do you feel about Bioshock Infinite in hindsight? Now that's you know we're a number of years removed from it. Wow, I mean, it, it was, uh, like I said, a, a fantastic opportunity to learn about uh, uh, making games. Uh, you know, I I'm, I'm, uh, uh, look back at uh, working on the DLC really fondly. I look for, back at, you know, working with the, uh, the voice performers really fondly. Uh, and, uh, you know, so much of uh, the, the craft that, uh, uh, you know, I've, I've been able to pick up is from, from that and... Uh, Working with uh, you know a lot of the former Looking Glass sort of folks, mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of those core philosophies that were you know definitely underlying and at a rational. And uh, I've had a, a lot of luck to work with a lot of former ration, uh, former Looking Glass. Folks. Yeah, did uh, were you caught up in the in the big irrational restructuring that, that ended up happening there, or had you moved on by that point? Uh, I was. I was uh, part of that, uh, and at that point uh, went over to do uh, freelance full-time for, for some time, and then uh, tried to do the Kickstarter for the Black. Yeah, that's, what I was actually, that's exactly what I was going to ask you about next. What, what was that project? It ended up, you know, obviously it didn't make it. It was uh, 2015 is when the end of the road came for it, but yeah, what, what was the Black Glove? The Black Glove was sort of a more experimental narrative-focused game, uh, working with a lot of folks who were former Irrational, a lot of voice talent that I'd worked with, uh, both at EA and at Irrational. Yuri Lowenthal was the, the main character hmm. in that, and his, uh, his wife, uh, uh, Tara Platt, was uh, the other uh, co-lead in that game. Uh, and uh, uh, it was a real attempt you know, to take some of our severance money and try to kick off a new company 
and get some crowdfunding. It was uh, ended up being towards the tail end of uh, you know crowdfunding being a kind of viable option, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, but I still get people uh, you know frequently writing me like, "Hey, when is the Black Glove coming back?" Which is <laughs> which is great. Uh, it was a, it was fun to work on. Uh, we had still. You know, I still had a lot to learn about how uh, you know how that game would come together, uh, and it's uh, it's hard to pitch a game when you're still kind of figuring out a lot of uh, those things, especially yeah. if it's not based on a previous series or Makes things sense. like that. Yeah. So uh, now you're not here for your health. We're promoting Underworld Ascended. Mm-hmm. It's on the monitor behind you there. It's mm-hmm. a spiritual successor to Ultima Underworld, one of the most beloved, greatest games of all time, certainly greatest RPGs. Uh, you have two other game industry luminaries. That, that you are able to call colleagues now in the form mm-hmm. of Paul Nerath and Warren Spector. Mm-hmm. What have you learned from them? Jeez, uh, and I would add to that uh, Tim Stomach, who is our lead designer and was also the lead designer of uh, Thief, worked on wow. System Shock. Uh, is somebody who I, I learn about game design from every time I talk to him. Uh, but, you know, all of those folks and, and others at, at uh, uh, other side, uh, you know, have backgrounds at... at uh, in looking glass or irrational or both yeah and uh it's uh, it's hard not to nerd out a little bit when people talk about the early days working on thief uh but geez it's uh you know i've worked with uh you know paul with a few for a few years now uh who is uh kind of one of the unsung heroes of of uh, game development he's a co-founder of looking glass yeah. designed the first few levels of uh of ultima underworld uh, and uh, and you got the chance to work with uh, Warren Spector on uh, the narrative for Ultim- uh, for Underworld Descendant, uh, and yeah, it's really uh, uh, you know uh, on a on a day by day, hour by hour basis. Uh, Looking Glass was just uh, you know we were talking earlier, and, and a lot of those folks were you know former MIT. They brought a lot of uh, uh, you know intellect and logic for to sure. making immersive sims. Uh, you know, it, it, it ends up that making uh, games that are, are based on, uh, uh, you know, logical uh, simulations, having a, a, you know, strong logic background really <laughs> helps. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's, you know, for, for all those folks and for working at Ken, with Ken, uh, you know, just the approach of, you know, hey, what are we trying to solve? What are we, uh, you know, what's the, what's the most logical way of uh, clearly getting these things across uh, and how to... Uh, uh, Really make the the, the best game uh, possible. It's you know it, it, there there's there, there's a lot that uh, I think Looking Glass. When people talk about those days, it, it seems like a video game grad school. Or, yeah, that's you know? a good way to put it. So, do you yeah. have a favorite Looking Glass game, just personally? Geez, it's I would say Ultima Underworld. It was actually a game that I had not played uh, as a kid. Yeah, uh, I was playing. Uh, I think I'd gone back and forth between PC games and console games at the time. I was playing uh, uh, console games when it came out, but I played it, uh, you know, a few years ago, and I was amazed by uh, not only you know how well it held up, uh, but how many you know you can clearly see how it influenced games like Bioshock, sure. System Shock, oh yeah, uh, the Morrowind series. Uh, but there's there are elements of that game that nobody's really followed up on, and you know we're attempting to for uh, un- Underworld Descendants, uh, just an incredibly innovative game. So how much how much inspiration do you take from the System Shocks and Ultima Underworlds for Ascendant versus trying to not be so worried about the past and and make something for 2018? Well, I would say that that Underworld Descendant is definitely everything that we've learned about making games from series like uh, like System Shock, Bioshock, Thief, uh, Ultima Underworld. You know, clearly, uh, but uh, you know, also, I mean, the original Ultima Underworld was a, like I said, a incredibly innovative game. So we're really looking at how can we innovate in in different ways as well. I yeah. Mean, you know, we're uh, we're a 14-person team altogether. We're definitely a, an indie-sized project. Uh, we're uh, going up against uh, you know a lot of teams that are you know 300, 400, and more folks. Uh, so we're really you know uh, during Underworld Ascendant, we really tried to look at you know what can we do differently. What are the opportunities out there? Uh, you know whether it's you know what are things that we'd like to see in games like um, in a lot of the big RPGs. You know you can 
uh, uh, you know, explore for miles and miles and miles. But you know, the environments feel a little static over time. Yeah, you're lucky if you go to you know, you get a repop if you go back to an area. Uh, we really saw an opportunity where, with our size team, we could make a smaller world, but have it be constantly evolving. So every time you return to an area, if you chose to, uh, that uh, you'd have new challenges uh, and opportunities. There's a degrading world state. Uh, so over time, creatures that are normally associated with the lower depths of the Stygian abyss start crawling their way up. Um, and in, in some of those elements, actually, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of really fantastic game design in a lot of modern board games. Games like Eldritch Horror, Mansions of Madness. They do a lot of uh, repeatable narrative in really innovative ways. And, uh, you know, it was really looking at uh, how we could apply some of those principles. So it's a mix of, you know, games, uh, game series we've worked on, what other people aren't doing, and, and uh, you know, what are, what are really exciting design innovations that, that we can kind of try to incorporate. How much line walking do you have to do between, you know, serving old-school Ultima Underworld fans versus, you know, trying to bring in a new audience? It's, it's tough because uh, Ultima Underworld did so many things right that, uh, you know, what, what really stood out about that game uh, varies from person to person. You know, uh, in some cases it, it might be, uh, you know, a certain quest or the, the feeling of, of immersion or the feeling that sort of, it had a, a lot of uh, survival elements. Uh, you know, there's definitely elements of the game that we took direct inspiration from. Uh, in, our, in, in the game, uh, in Underworld Descendant, we wanted to really... Uh, uh, evidence elements of the immersive sim, uh, uh, you know, so that people uh, could really have fun and experiment in ways that, that, you know, you might have to dig and dig and dig to find the, kind of the depth in, in some of the looking glass games. Uh, so in the game, um, we present you with interesting challenges, and the game uh, provides you with a, a wide bevy of tools and then however you, however you solve those challenges is up to you. Yeah, it's, a, it's very, a systems-based yeah. role-playing game, yeah. effectively. Is that fair yeah. to say? Yeah, totally. And, and uh, I mean, if, if, uh, and that, that was you know, definitely the case for the uh, original Looking Glass games, but the game rewards you for creativity, for engaging with the systems in interesting ways. Yeah. Uh, and you know, in that, you know, what we've tried to really double down on is that sort of experimental gameplay uh, and digging into... I mean, we, we offer, we have dozens of different skills and abilities like combat, stealth, magic. There's a procedural-based uh, magic system like in the original <laughs> game. That's one thing that we definitely, you know, took uh, directly from the original game. Yeah. And there's a meta element of a silver sapling from the original game uh, where you basically have this magical device uh, or magical uh, artifact you can plop down and put a respawn point anywhere where uh, there's a, a ground. So if you want to, you know... You know, attempt something kind of audacious uh, and see if you can get away with it. You know that, like, oh, I can. If I don't pull it off, I can restart back there. Has so. uh, Has Richard Garriott seen the game yet? I'm not sure. We do have a. We. I was just uh, mentioning earlier today. We do have a callback for the first line in Ultima Underworld is "Treachery and Doom," voiced by Richard Garriott. <laughs> and there's a. I think the first bit of graffiti you come across in the game is someone has written "Treachery and Doom." It wasn't me at all, I swear. Uh, but yeah, there's definitely like we, we we definitely want to make a game that if you haven't played the Ultima Underworld games, that uh, you can you can pick up and have fun immediately. Uh, and there's a you know larger storyline that you can kind of pick up on. Um, but uh, if you are a fan of the earlier games, uh, there there are plenty of hooks. There are a lot. I'm a continuity comic book continuity nerd, so uh, there are a lot of uh, references to the early games. Have you had a chance? either by sort of coincidence just playing stuff or maybe specifically research-based to go back, to go and look at, at some of the more recent remakes or revivals, whether it's Doom from 2016, uh, you know, after all, such a long hiatus with Doom or, or even like the Shadow of the Colossus remake or anything like mm-hmm. that to sort of look at how other teams have, have sort of brought something beloved back for modern times or, or do you kind of just prefer to clean sheet it, close yourself off, and not be influenced by what someone else may or may not have done? I mean, I think you're always influenced by, uh, you know, a lot of uh, games you're playing. I'm, I'm a huge fan of, uh, you know, the, the modern Doom, really, really fun game. Uh, I wouldn't say I was 
directly influenced. Uh, though there's some fantastic level design in that game, uh, but uh, I mean, it's really uh, making a game as a as a matter of like trying to figure out like what are the most interesting challenges, uh, and then really trying to make good on those challenges. You're trying trying to you know set a high bar uh, you know for design, for writing, for you know the the experience, and if you have that that bar to try to clear, you're like, oh, if I can if I can hit that, this game will be amazing. So. It's no secret, you kind of hinted at it yourself, you're, you're coming out at a very busy time, a lot of these, these heavy hitters coming mm-hmm. out, the game is, uh, as this interview airs, the game's out this week, mm-hmm. so give, give, give folks the sales pitch, like, because it's, you know, I feel like, you know, you're a, it's a, it's a you're like a 14 person team, mm-hmm. you don't have the $50 million marketing budget behind you, but I have seen the game at, at various stages, you actually were reminding me, like, oh, we met three years ago, mm-hmm. seeing an early version of the game at PAX East. So th- there is a lot, I feel like there is a lot here that that, uh, that gamers will really like if they give it a shot. So what is the elevator pitch, ultimately, to get people to give Underworld Ascendant a look? Yeah, well, I mean, I would say that if you are a fan of game series like System Shock, Bioshock, Thief, uh, that uh, you, you, you'll, you'll be interested in Underworld Descendant. Uh, if you're looking for an RPG that's doing things differently, uh, you know, that's, uh, it's a game for you. And, you know, we are, uh, we're an indie title. It's also indie priced. It's uh, only $30, so Can't be it's, sad. Uh, uh, you know, not, not as, uh, you know, I think it's uh, competitive in that, that way. And, and if you, like I said, if you're fans of, uh, you know, Dishonored, Bioshock, System Shock, that sort of game, we're the only game that's coming out this year that's along those lines. Yeah. So. Uh, Steam at first? Uh, yeah, we're coming out November fifteenth yeah. on PC and consoles next year. Great, that's actually I wasn't I was going to ask you. So that's that's cool that you've got the so the console versions will be coming a little later. Yep, yeah, we're fourteen out. person teams got uh, only so much bandwidth at a time, I presume. It's true. It's true. <laughs> it's uh, we wear a lot of hats, but uh, you can only wear so many hats at a given time. Sure. So as uh, <laughs> with the game coming out as again you know, this this week as we as we air this. What what's it feel like to have a project be done? Is it is it pure relief? Is it is it anxiety ridden somehow? I'm sort of curious what that is like. It's uh, you know working on immersive sims. Uh, there are a lot of elements that don't really come together till the end, and that's something that Paul Nurath talked about for Thief, where the you know for the stealth systems didn't really come together in a coherent way until the final few months of that project, yeah. which must have been immensely stressful. Uh, you know, and in our game we have, you know, we have stealth, we have combat, we have magic. There's, you know, you don't have uh, prescribed character classes. You can mix and match however you want. The immersive sim qualities. There's so many systems that are interlocking, uh, and it's been so satisfying over, uh, you know, recent months to see all those systems come together and be polished. The team has just done, you know, stellar uh, work, you know, making everything come together, and it's been an honor working with them. It's really. Uh, it's it's also a huge relief as well. <laughs> so, are you the kind of person now that I always? Uh, this is another question I always like to ask everybody: Is when you're done, you, you've given what three something years of your life to this project? Are you gonna are you gonna uh, tropical island this thing and just unplug and go away for a little while, or do you kind of just? Like to just stay dug in and see what people are doing with it. What's what's your next move for at least for the you know immediate yeah. short term of finishing this project? I mean, uh, I, I would, I'm looking forward to taking off a weekend. I've been, uh, <laughs> but definitely uh, putting in a lot of lot of hours and and you know really just trying to make the game as, as best as, as I can in the in the time we have. Uh, and then you know we do have uh, you know further updates planned beyond. Uh, we haven't talked about DLC yet, but. Uh, but uh, really, I can't wait to see people play the game because, uh, you know, this whole time, every time we've brought in new external testers or we've shown at PAX, we've seen people come up with solutions that we've never thought of before. When you have all these systems that are based off altering physics and physical properties, you give all these people, you give people all these tools, uh, they, they figure out uh, solutions you really haven't, uh, even occurred to you, yeah. uh, and it's that's been satisfying. And then I, I can't wait to see what people uh, come up with on on streams. You know, it's definitely I've worked on a lot of games that had kind of like one set way of beating the game, and this is totally you know doubles down on player choice. And uh, I, I, you know, even at PAX, we you know would see people come up with solutions like five different solutions for solving one of the early rooms. That's yeah. uh, 
I, I can't wait to see all the madcap stuff people come up with. It does seem like you're hitting at the right time in the sense of like gamers now love that open-ended choice and sort of re, you know there, and there's inherent replayability yeah. in, in Ascendant with the 6,000 different ways you can approach any given problem. So That's one of the things we set out really early to do was to make a game that you could play multiple times over and have a really uniquely different experience. Uh, you know, the uh, you can really double down on combat, you can really double down on stealth, or you can mix and match. Uh, the game narrative adapts to uh, a lot of your choices within the game. Uh, there are definitely, you know, sort of like, you know, main act uh, events, but when you are given, uh, when you take on a, a contract for one of the, the three factions within the game, uh, it's literally however you choose to, to solve it is up to you. Uh, we've had people like, oh, I can't wait to break your game. But like, no, no, you have the tools. Like, however you do it is completely up to you. So uh, do you now, when you do take a little break, you come back, do you get to go help War Inspector on System Shock 3? Or what's next for Joe Fielder at this uh, point? We'll, we'll, we'll see about that. I know I would, uh, I would love to uh, get a, a shot to write for Shodan, uh, you know, one of the, the most beloved characters in games. And, and uh, both Ken Levine and Austin Grossman set a really high bar. I got, did get a chance to write for Terry Brosius for Underworld Descendants. She's one of the voice performers in the game and uh, really, uh, a really fantastic person. Uh, and uh, that was that was great. Uh, so I, I hope I get to uh, write for Jerry some more. Excellent. Well, Joe Fielder, thank you so much. Underworld Ascendant is out now. As you hear this, go check it out on PC. As, uh, as Joe said, thirty bucks, and it's going to give you a ton of replayability, ton of time, uh, systems-based role-playing game, exactly what people love right now. So give it a look. I know it's the big fall season, but I think. Uh, I think you're not going to disappoint people based on the, the bits and pieces I've seen so far. Uh, Joe, thank you so much. Really appreciate you making the trip out here Thanks uh, for to do me. this. This was great. Uh, for much more from the best, brightest, most fascinating minds in the games industry, I've got new episodes of IGN Unfiltered every month. So stay tuned on IGN, YouTube, or your favorite podcast service as well. We are the hosts of Comic Sans, the podcast about comics for those who are sans knowledge. I'm Yen, a reader, writer, liver, and breather of comic books. And I'm Nat, and I know absolutely nothing about comics. Which makes both of us authorities in our respective fields. Exactly. Hey, wait. On Comic Sans, I make Nat read some of my favorite comics, including Sandman Saga and Laura Olympus. And Yen tells me what makes that comic special. Then I hear what Nat thinks, and I try to avoid a pulmonary embolism. While I actively try to give him one. Listen to Comic Sans on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can already binge our first season, and we just released a special bonus episode on Across the Spider-Verse. Hey, Nat, before we go, I'll give you 50 bucks if you can tell me what Comic-Con is. Is it related to Chili Con Carn? Do you mean chili con carne? Maybe we should be chili sands. Mm-hmm.